All right. Hey, we've been in the book of Romans now for one week. We started last week talking about the messenger and the message. We talked about who the Apostle Paul was and his message. The Apostle Paul was this radically changed man. He was a humbled man. He was a set-apart man. Those are all characteristics that should be in our lives. His message was the gospel message. And we talked about that message was a promised message. The Old Testament prophets kept talking about this Messiah that would come, not just that he would come, but actually what he would do in very detailed ways. So it was promised. It was pointed specifically at Jesus, his person, and his work, and it's powerful. It's the only message that we can speak that actually brings transformation of the heart. So the question remains for all of us to keep running through our minds if we're going to have a gospel-saturated life is, what is the gospel? What is this good news that we've heard that's changed us that we then can share with others? Is it in your mind? Can you actually speak it? That becomes critical. That song we just sang, the world is dying to know the gospel message. This wonderful message that even though everyone was born sinful and separated from God, worthy of his wrath, by the grace of God, he came. Amen? Jesus came and took that wrath so that all who would put their trust in him turn away from any other way or hope and put their trust in Jesus, there's forgiveness. We're then delivered from the wrath of God. And when we get to Romans Verse 18, it says the wrath of God. It says it a number of times. So the wrath of God is real. It doesn't mean God is out of control. It just means the wrath of God is the, the reasonable response from a holy God to sinful people. I am so thankful for Jesus Christ and that gospel message. We're going to keep returning through our study in Romans to the gospel message so that we can indeed, as our series says, uh, have a gospel-saturated life. So we're going to move on today, and we're going to read in just a moment verses 1 through 7, and we're just going to cover verses 5 through 7. I'd like you to stand with me if you could, please. If you can stand, I'm going to put this up on the screen. Uh, this is New American Standard Version. You can look in your scripture as well. You can read out loud with me or just follow along, whatever you prefer. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now before you're seated, let me just tell you why it's challenging to pe preach some of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, and because what you see on the screen is one sentence. 
It's one long sentence. So if you hear that phrase, that's a Pauline sentence. It means that's like the Apostle Paul says it. And what's really interesting, this is the New American Standard, which I believe is most closely connected to the original Greek. And when you're looking at the original Greek, there is no punctuation. It's just one big long string of thoughts. So if you have another translation, sometimes it does break it up into sentences. That's what's challenging. So as we go through this, as of today, we have this big, long thought, and we're just going to take the last part of it because we covered the first part of it last week. Here's four concepts or four things I just want us to grab in these verses. We're going to look at the grace of God. We're going to look at obedience and how that's connected with faith. We're going to look at Jesus' name and this idea of calling. All right, so those are the four things we're going to walk through, and here's the main point, so if I lose you, (laughs) you got it right now. When the grace of God is understood and applied, the gospel message takes root, bringing radical life change, or read it with me, grace changes everything. Father God, we're thankful for your word, we're thankful for the Holy Spirit that is the teacher today. And I just want to, again, submit myself to you as I communicate, that I don't get in the way of the teaching of the Holy Spirit to all of our hearts today. And I'm praying that, yeah, your grace would be more fully understood because we want to be changed. We want to be transformed. We, Father, just as we sang, we want to be more like Jesus. So we pray in his name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So there in verse 5, you see the first use of the word grace, and it's actually used in this text a couple of times. It's one of those very um, important words in the mind of the Apostle Paul because he uses it through Romans over 20 times. In all of his letters, he refers to it over 70 times. So grace is a big deal. Grace changes what? Everything. We cannot understand what's written in the book of Romans if we don't grasp grace. We can't understand the Bible if we can't grasp grace. We can't be changed by this gospel message if we don't grasp and take hold of this truth about grace. It's an interesting word, even as I say it, grace, we're going to unpack what it means, but the man on the street meeting, what is grace? You know, it's a positive word, but it's, most people understand the depth of it. How would we use the word grace outside of this church building? You might say of somebody that's dancing, she moved across the floor effortless with grace. So that's positive, but that's really not what it means in this particular text. The Greek word is charis. And as we understand grace biblically, that word means God's favor towards the unworthy. It means God's benevolence on the undeserving. And we're going to learn today that this grace is not just his His benevolence to us that leads us to salvation, it's his benevolence to us that leads us through our entire lives. It's not just about salvation, it's about the enablement to serve God even after that point of salvation. 
I found this somewhere. It seemed to make sense. Let me show it to you. Grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. I think that captures it. Well, grace is everything. But it doesn't cost anything, and we don't deserve it. Grace is what every person needs, what none can earn, and what God alone can give, and he does give freely. So don't minimize the grace of God, meaning, well, he loves us, or that he's actually kind to us. It's much bigger than that. The grace of God, if we're going to understand it rightly in its fullness, is about the glory of God. It's about the sovereignty of God. It's about the holiness of God. And for us to understand grace clearly or biblically, it involves that we have a proper view of God and a proper view of ourselves. So what is your view of God today? Is God in His holiness big, even awesome, Is he terrifying? Is he unapproachable and yet very, very beautiful? Is that your view of God? Or is your view of God the big grandpa in the sky doting on his grandchildren? Is your view of God the big brother that just kind of wants to hang out with us? How big is your view of God? To understand grace fully, we have to have an accurate view of ourselves. And not just ourselves, but all of humanity. So are we, as an individual, are we as the people on the planet, we're kind of average, we're somewhat acceptable to God? No, we're not perfect, but we're really not that bad. Is that your view of humanity? Or is it, as Scripture reveals, we are desperately sick, falling far short of any sort of standing or relationship with God. See, if we're going to understand grace accurately, if we want to see how important grace is, then we can't make God smaller and us bigger. Because if we make God smaller and we make ourselves bigger, do you need grace? You don't. Because you've brought God down and you brought mankind up so that, like, we're okay. But we're not. We're not okay. See, the grace of God is not essential if we bring God down to a tolerable level. The grace of God is not essential if we raise ourselves up so that God can tolerate us. If we do that, then grace becomes this really nice idea, but not an essential reality. When we do that, then grace really isn't that amazing. Now, at this point, the rest of the sermon could just be about what the Scripture says about grace. We'd we'd find a number of things that grace is glorious, that grace is abundant, that grace is rich, that grace is manifold, and God's grace is sufficient. But I just want to show you a few times that we'll get to later in the book of Romans how the Apostle Paul refers to grace. This is Romans 11, verses 5 and 6. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's, what? Gracious choice. If it is by grace, 
It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now, we'll fully unpack that, but he's saying our salvation is by grace. And if it's by work, then it's not grace. If it's of grace, it's not of works. It's like, it's not somehow God maybe opens the door and gives us a little bit of grace and then we have to work the rest of the way. He's saying it's either of grace or it's not when it comes to our salvation. But what we're going to see is it's not just our salvation, it's our entire Christian experience. Let me take you to Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us, delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And you're saying, I don't see grace in there. Well, that freely give us all things is the same root word, charis. So it could be he freely graces us with what? All things. So it's now talking to believers, if God's for us, then who can be against us? And as we walk with the Lord, he graciously gives us freely everything that we need. Then Romans 12 talks about our spiritual gifts. So Romans 12, 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. So you and I have spiritual gifts. They're actually most accurately called gifts of grace in order to serve God. And, and I would even say the gifts are given to us so we can serve God, and it's by His grace He's put into us the desire to serve. So as we look at this verse 5 again, I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul connects grace with. He says, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now, it's interesting. He's saying it's through Jesus, this grace is extended through Jesus. And he says it's also connected to the apostleship that I have. So understand what he's doing here right from the beginning. He's saying it's not just about my salvation, it's about what God has then called me to do. The we in that text is not referring to we, it's referring even to the apostles. So look what he does. The apostle Paul, as he's writing, he links grace with his apostleship. So it wasn't just the grace of God that brought him to his knees, that he would recognize Jesus who he was. It was then the grace of God that gave him this unique role within the church. Now, whatever your gifting or whatever your station or role or calling, we could all say that same thing. It is by the grace of God. I do what I do by what? The grace of God. You do what you do in life. Those things that God has given you to do well, you do it by the grace of God. Apart from the grace of God, there would be nothing for us to be able to move ahead in this Christian experience. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15.10, the Apostle Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Can anybody else echo that? It's by the grace of God that you are what you are. It's by the grace of God that I am what I am. If God had not extended to us his grace for our salvation and our ablement, we would be 
nothing. There was an old preacher, his name was Charles Spurgeon. Every pastor quotes him once in a while because he's called the Prince of Preachers. Look at what he said. There are many who are barely Christians and have scarcely enough grace to float them into heaven. The keel of their vessel grating on the gravel all the way. Now, he's not saying the grace of God is not enough. I think what he's saying is we think of the grace of God that gets us to heaven. Apart from that, we're on our own. And that's just not the right way to think about grace. It does indeed get us to heaven, but then it enables us. It floats us. It does everything else for us if we would just recognize our need for it. To many of us, we're, and I include myself in this, we're like I read this story of this poor European family who saved for years to buy tickets to get on a ship and come to America. Once they were at sea, they had, you know, they had packed some cheese and bread because of a long journey, and that's all they had, so they rationed it. And one of the boys in this family finally complained, Dad, if I have to eat cheese and bread another day, I'm going to die. So the dad, feeling sympathy for the boy, gave him a nickel, said, go to the galley, and maybe you can buy something, maybe an ice cream cone. So the boy goes, and he's gone for this long period of time. And finally, he comes back, and he has this huge smile on his face, and dad said, where have you been for so long? He says, well, I've been in the galley eating three ice cream cones and a steak dinner. Dad says, you got all that for a nickel? says, no, all the food is free. It comes with the price of the ticket. It was like all-inclusive. Do you understand that connection? Some of us live life that we, Jesus bought this ticket so we can go to heaven, and then we have to ration everything else and scrimp and save. No, everything is given to us for the trip. Let me ask you, are you experiencing the everything for the trip, or are you just waiting to float into heaven. Jesus paid for the ticket, amen? Jesus provides everything for the trip, amen? Yeah. Everything, another passage says, that we need for life and godliness is found in the true knowledge of Jesus. And I would say, just in addition to that, true knowledge of Jesus, including the grace that we receive in Jesus. Let's move ahead. So what does this grace of God through Jesus to the apostles then bring about? It says to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. So I just want to grab that obedience of faith. It was a grace of God that brought Saul to be Paul, converted him, called him, gifted him to be an apostle, and the result of that was the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Now, we'll see as we go through Romans, there's Gentiles and Jews. That's kind of the breakdown of the whole world, according to the Jewish way of thinking. So there's this interesting connection, obedience of faith. Obedience of faith. That means one of two things. It could be that the apostle Paul is using this as faith and obedience. They're synonymous. 
which was kind of interesting if it's by faith. I don't know that he had to clarify it by obedience. And so I think the other thing, the other meaning would be the one we need to grab here. It's obedience, which comes from what? Faith. So we see an important connection. The grace needed for salvation is accessed through faith, and it is this faith that brings about obedience, but that's also by the grace of God. Now, there's nothing in what he says there or writes there that is implying that our salvation is by our obedience or by our works. We're not saved by our works. We're saved through faith by his grace. Amen to that. So we don't have a conflict here. We just need to understand what he's saying. And some people have concerns when Scripture connects obedience to faith They have a concern, it's troubling to them because some don't want to connect any sort of ethical or lifestyle responses that come from faith because they want to stay far away from this idea of we're working for our salvation. And I want to stay far away from that as well. But we don't need to err on the other side. A.W. Tozer said, to escape the error of salvation by works, we've fallen into the opposite error of salvation without obedience. We've gone the other extreme. J.I. Packer says, what saves is faith alone, but that faith that saves is never alone. Faith is this huge idea. It's not just a simple acquiescence to a certain doctrinal truth. Now we go all the way to the end of the letter of Romans. He brings this faith this phrase right back. Let me show it to you. This is the last chapter right towards the end. According to the commandment of of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to what? Say it. Leading to obedience of faith. He says it again. Grace through faith resulting not just in salvation but also resulting in obedience. That's not a work salvation. That's just a full understanding of what faith means. It's not just a mental assent. It's not just praying a prayer. It's something that changes everything about us. It has been said that this idea of faith and obedience, it's like separating heat and light from a candle. Think about that for a moment. Heat and light are both produced by the candle, but you know they're not actually the same thing, but you can't separate them either. So when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, you can't separate that from this heart change that then desires to obey and is actually enabled to obey. Now, next week, Pastor Scott's going to pick up our text in verse 8, and I'm just going to steal his first point, okay? He's not here right now, so don't tell him, because then he'll just repeat it next week. Look what it says in verse 8. First, he says, this is the Apostle Paul now referring to his readers, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your, what? Faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. So he's never been to Rome yet, but he's heard about the faith of these people. How do you hear about faith? 
You don't actually hear about faith. You actually see faith in action. So now we go right to the end of the letter again. Look how he says this again a different way. For the report of your what? Obedience has reached to all. Do you see that connection? Everybody's heard about your faith at the beginning of the letter. At the end, everybody's heard about your obedience because from faith, by the grace of God, there's what? Obedience. And that's what people notice. Apart from obedience, nobody knows you have faith in Jesus Christ. It was their faith, it was their obedience, because both of those come through the grace of God, because the grace of God changes what? It changes everything. So if we miss the grace of God, then we don't come into salvation through faith, and we don't see any change of our life, because both of those come through Jesus by his grace. Let me take you to somebody, you probably heard me quote before, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German pastor when Hitler came to power in Germany. And at one point, he was leading a, quote, illegal seminary because the German church at that point had actually been taken over by the Nazis. And it was during this time that he wrote a book. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. And, and it was written by a good man because this discipleship that he was living out cost him his life. Here's what he writes. Only those who believe obey. And in those who obey, believe. The soul of the believer knows that when we believe, we will obey, and when we obey, we believe. If we believe but do not obey, the believer is laid open to the danger of what? Cheap grace. See, it's all about grace, but then there's this cheap grace. If we obey but don't believe, we're laid open to the danger of salvation through works. He goes on to say, this is so good, cheap grace has served as an inoculation, or more accurately, a vaccination. We have gotten just enough of Jesus to prevent us from catching the real thing. As a result, we begin to feel secure even in the midst of godless living. We become aware of our disobedience, but yet cheap grace provides us with a deceptive sense of strength or security. He says that well. There's a cheap grace that floats around that, yeah, this grace, I want it, I'll receive it. But then it, 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 it proves to be shallow in our lives because grace changes what? Everything. It changes our standing with the eternal God. And then it changes our response to everything around us. That's what the grace of God does. It's the grace of God to salvation. It's the grace of God that leads to the obedience of faith. We still need to move on. So Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. And then there's this phrase for his namesake. So that means us we need to step back and ask, what is so amazing about grace? Is grace amazing because it flows from Jesus to prompt our faith to salvation? The answer is yes, that makes it amazing. Is it amazing because that it flows from Jesus to bring change in our lives at every level? Yes, that's amazing. But what makes grace really amazing is that the grace of God fully understood and lived out makes much of the name of Jesus. It glorifies Jesus. It honors his name. 
You can say it a number of different ways in that phrase, for his name's sake. The honor of Jesus is displayed. The character of Jesus is made known. So his name's sake, whose name is it? It's the name of Jesus. So again, when we look at the big picture, our faith really is not the end goal of God's grace. Our salvation is not the end goal of God's grace. Our obedience is not the end goal of God's grace. Making much of Jesus' name is the ultimate end goal of the display of the grace of God in our lives. It turns people's attention away from us to who? To Jesus. So when we see in Scripture the name of God or the name of the Lord, it refers to really His wholeness, His character. It's who He is. It's His attributes. To lift up the name of God is to declare the glory of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God, the justice of God, it's all wrapped up in his name. The Old Testament writer said it this way, Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us. Boy, we just need to say that more and more, right? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Again, the Old Testament writer Malachi, the prophet, says this, For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name, this is God speaking through the prophet, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. See, when the Apostle Paul speaks about grace, Yes, it's through grace that brought him to salvation. Yes, it's through grace that he was given this huge opportunity to be an apostle. It was through grace then that those apostles, the Apostle Paul and others, brought people to faith and then to obedience. But ultimately, all of that is for the glory of the name of Jesus. It's for his name's sake. Every church has some sort of mission statement. Here's ours, if you didn't know it. We exist to reach out with the gospel. We exist to build people up through the word of God. We exist to grow strong in our relationship with God and others. But then there's the final phrase, all for the what? Glory of God. It's not ultimately about reaching people with the gospel. It's not really only ultimately about building people up the word. It's not only ultimately about relational connection with God and others, it's ultimately about the glory of God being seen through us as a church family and being seen through us as individual, the greatness of God, the grace of God, the power of God, and all that he is. There's a story that I read. It's about three men. They were all working on the same pile of stones on a construction site, and somebody passed by, and he asked one man, so what are you doing? He said, well, of course, I'm chiseling stone. What's it look like? The passerby went on a little bit further, and he asked another man, he says, well, really, what are you doing? He says, I'm bringing home a paycheck. I got to work. Then he went to the third man, and he asked the third man the same question, what are you doing? At that question, the man dropped his sledgehammer and stood erect and looked at the building site, and he says, I'm building a great cathedral. 
Do you see the difference on the end goal? They are all doing the same thing, but only one of them saw the end goal, the ultimate goal, and no doubt that probably motivated him to excel because he, there's this great cathedral that I'm building. Church, we're presenting a great cathedral to the world. It's the glory of God in all that we do. I was here Wednesday night, and before I started my class down at that end of the building, I was just walking around and looking. I went into the gym, and it's, it was awesome to see this gym packed full of teenagers having a great time, and they're going to be hearing the word of God. That was cool, amen? Then I go into the fireside room, and the little sparkies, they're singing songs to Jesus, and that is cool. It says it should be, and then I came in here, and the older ones there they're getting ready to hear a lesson, and then I go down to the cubbies room, and the cubbies, they're little tiny ones, they're just soaking up those simple truths of God. All of that is really good, but that's really not the end goal. Why does all of that happen? For the name of Jesus. So that Jesus would be known in those lives, that then those lives can present the name and the glory of God in the world. We need to remember the end goal. Because if we don't remember the end goal, then we just get wrung out and tired. Because we don't see people responding the way that we think they should. We don't see progress. And yet through all that perseverance of serving the Lord, however God has gifted us to do that, Jesus' name is being made much of. There's one more concept I want to present or pull out of this passage we pick it up there at verse 6, it says, among whom you also, he's talking to those that he's writing to in Rome, are the called of Jesus Christ. To all the beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, he's referring to his readers, ones who by the grace of God have been brought to faith and obedience. And I just want you to notice the repeated word, the repeated word is called, called. And I'll take you back, if you have a Bible open, you can look back to verse 1 where it says, the Apostle Paul says, I'm called as an apostle. It's the same word. And we'll see later on in Romans, he uses that same word and says, you're called according to his purpose. A little bit later, when we dive into the deep water, he connects predestination and election with this same concept of people have been called. The Apostle Paul in other, in other letters says people have been called into fellowship. They've been called to freedom. What does it mean to be called? Here's what you need to grab if you don't grab anything else. It's God that's initiating something. It's not us initiating something with God. It's God initiating something in the Apostle Paul's life. It's God who's initiated something in the life of these readers, these first readers of Romans. So going back in Romans 1.1, called as an apostle. So that's where the apostle Paul is acknowledging, God called me to this. It's not like I was seeking it. I didn't even want it, but, but by the grace of God, he brought me to see Jesus, who he was, and then he called me to this very specific, unique role. And I'll just say, I already said it, I'll say it again, each one of us. We've been called into a relationship with God, have also been called into unique roles and responsibilities within the kingdom work of God. 
Now, some of you say, yeah, I know. I didn't want to do it, but he made me. <laughs> Sometimes we think of the call of God that way, and, and I can recognize that early on in my, I didn't really want to do this thing that he would kept putting me in, but by the grace of God, he's called me to something. But it's not just pastors who are called. It's not just apostles who are called. Can I just say that you've been called to be active in the kingdom work of God? And that's going to look very different. Are you re aware of the call? Are you responding to the call? Let me just narrow it down a little bit. If you're part of this church family, can I just say you're called to be active in this church family? Okay, you can call this commercial if you want to. I think it ties in with the text. We've shown you this image before, the row, the circle, the mission, right? Right now you're in the what? That's good. It's good that you're in a row. I think we need to have more and more people in the row because God in his plan says it's good to gather big. It's good to be here and worship together, to hear these voices together. It's good to hear the proclamation of the word, but that's not enough. He's also called us to be in relationship in these things we call circles. So if all you're seeing is the back of a brother or sister's head, that's not enough. You need to see their face right? You need to interact with them. You need to be encouraged by them. You need to be an encourager to them. And there's times when we need to confront one another. All of that happens in circle. It happens in relationship. But then there's that other thing called the mission. What are we doing that's reaching out from here? Are you involved with that? I just want to encourage some of you have been with us for a while and you're in the row consistently. Amen. And you're in some circles, but I would say you've missed this piece about being involved in the mission in serving and giving back to other brothers and sisters for the kingdom work of God. Okay, commercial over, if that's what you wanted to call that. It says he's called on his apostle. Then look, it says called of Jesus Christ. That's really interesting. New International Version, some of you have, English Standard Version, actually translates it this way, called to belong to Jesus Christ. Wow. If you know Jesus Christ right now as your personal Savior, God called you. He said, you're coming, and you're doing this. You're, I'm going to put it in your heart. And some of you, when I hear your story, as in mine, it's like, I recognize that looking back now. I, didn't, I wasn't really interested. And all of a sudden, there's something in my heart that says, I need this. That's the call of God on your life. But it's not just a call to religion. Actually, it's not at all a call to religion. It's not a call to be more spiritual. It's a call to who? Jesus Christ and the grace that comes through him. Then this other phrase, called as saints. Boy, that's really an interesting word, saints. I was doing a Bible study a while back with a couple. They were going to get married and the soon-to-be husband came from a Catholic background. And we were reading a passage, and there was this phrase, called as saints. He stumbled over that. Any of you who come from a Catholic background, you stumble over this idea of saints? Because that means something different in the Catholic world. See, to be a saint in the Catholic world, you have to be dead. <laughs> you have to be dead five years. And then they look back over your life, and see if you did a few miracles and if there's anything like, and then you go through this process. 
You become a servant of God. You become venerable. You become blessed. And then you become a saint. There's no process here. He's saying to these readers, God has called you. The as there is not in the Greek. God has called you what? Saints. That means you've been set apart. That means you've been uniquely set apart to God. So contrary to the Catholic Church teaching, there's not a special group of saints and the rest of us are ain'ts. <laughs> no, if we know Jesus, we're all what? Saints. That's what it means. We've been set apart to him. He has done that. That's why we can be called saints because that's what we are. Right now we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Right now when God looks at us, he sees on us and in us the very righteousness of Jesus that has been imputed to us. Yes, we still sin, but aren't you thankful that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus? Because you've been set apart to him. I want to emphasize just one thing I said last week. When we see that word saints or idea of setting up, being set apart, I believe the emphasis on being set apart to Jesus Christ. Not necessarily a set apart from something. Now, I would say both are important. But sometimes we can get into the idea of I need to be set apart from certain people or certain things. And we don't recognize that that happens, the being set apart from certain people and certain things when we are set apart to God. So even physically, if the people and things I need to be set apart from are here and I'm set apart to Jesus, what do I become farther from? Those things, it just is natural. So we need to understand that our calling to be set apart to Jesus is the primary focus, not about all the things we shouldn't do. I just think we spend too much time worrying about what we shouldn't do instead of focusing on what has been done in us and for us by Jesus, by his grace. The writer of Hebrews says we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, and then it says this Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. In other words, he began it, he's going to end it, and he's all the way in between it. And his grace is at the beginning as he authors our salvation. His grace is at the begin end when he perfects our salvation. Because the grace of God changes what? Everything. I hope today you've experienced the grace of God in your life. That grace understood rightly, it's going to allow the gospel to take root. It's going to allow this gospel power to not just change your relationship with God, but your relationship with everything else. Today, God continues to call people. And I've been praying today that by the grace of God, somebody here would just say yes to the grace of God. Because I think sometimes people are here trying to work for God or trying to give God something. There's nothing we have that we can give to God that somehow he needs. But everything that he gives us, we need, amen? And it's by his grace, so we receive it. We receive his grace. 
It changes our heart and it changes everything. When the grace of God is understood and applied, the gospel takes root, bringing radical life change. So you might be here today and say, man, I need life change. It's not about working harder. It's about really maybe working less and surrendering to the work of God in your life. And we'd love to just pray with you in that process, meet with you, help you through that. Let me say it one more time. The grace of God changes what? Everything. Everything. Father, we're so thankful today for your grace. Your grace extended to us freely. Lord, we don't want to abuse it. We just want to see it fully for what it is, this power to change us. So, Father, I'm just going to pray for those here today. I don't know them all, but I just pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, because you're the teacher, would take these truths and drive it home. Maybe there's some areas of their life, Father, that they just need to surrender to you. The power of your grace to change. Father, I pray right now, just because you know everybody's heart, that they would just respond to what you're doing in them, that they would cry out to you, whether it's for salvation, say, I have nothing, God, but what you have given me in Jesus, and I want to receive that and turn away from everything else. Lord, for some brothers and sisters here today that are struggling, Lord, you know our hearts, you know our struggles, and I just pray again that your grace would remind them that, that you're enough. So even as we sing, I pray your spirit would work among us to make much of Jesus.